So we are going to get started. We are recording the semester. Uh, maybe you heard we are actually going to be studying alongside the women at Candeo Church in Cedar Falls, which is super fun. It's kind of like a sister church. Um, and I just found out this week they actually have more than 20 groups of women meeting in homes throughout the week up in the Cedar Valley. Um, and they have almost as many women as us um, signed up for that. And so um, I'm just, I'm thankful and excited for that. It, it almost feels like a good accountability and just sisterhood with them. So we are, let's be mindful of them and praying for them as we know they're studying just one week behind us. Um, be thankful with me that the word of God is living and active and that God has made himself known to us through his word. So, um, so today let's jump into Jonah chapter one, one through six. As we look to summarize uh, this opening chunk of the text, here's the question that I see the text asking more than anything else. The question to start with, why do we run from God? Why do we run from God? Last week, we spent some time getting good context on the book of Jonah. Um, and this week, hopefully, you read the whole book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. Uh, we watched as Jonah fled from the presence of God and then as God chased him down and breathed a storm on him. And as this scene opens, I wonder if you're asking the same thing with me. What exactly is Jonah thinking about God? What, what are his thoughts about God? Well, this is what it seems to be telling us. Jonah thinks God is for me. God is for the people of Israel. And as we built that context from 2 Kings, we saw like God is saying, Jonah is saying, God, you have enlarged our boundaries just like you said you would. You have given us the promised land. You have given us a king just as you said you would. So here we are. We are in Israel. We're in this promised land. And you have established your presence here in the temple. God, you are for me. And the thing is, is that none of that is actually inaccurate. Jonah's thoughts actually really aren't wrong at this point, but it's like he's saying, God, I know that you love me and it's obvious by my success. God, I know that you love me and it's because of all of this favor, all of this success that you have given to your people. But then what happens? All heck breaks loose when God comes to him and he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it for their evil, or better translated, the trouble has come up before me. And Jonah's like, no, 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 this does not fit. God, where's that love message for your people? This message is about Nineveh? It's about my enemies? Actually, God, it's about your enemies. Nineveh? Really? Of all the people that you are concerning yourself with, Nineveh? See, what we know from history is that Nineveh was known for their violence. Nineveh was serving as one of the capitals of Assyria, and Assyria was like this big, looming bully of a neighbor to Israel. And at this point, around 750 BC, Assyria was just like eating up their neighbors left and right. They were conquering their neighbors left and right. And at this point, they were just this threat to Israel. All these different commentaries, I heard the same example used over and over again. This is how violent they were. 
when they would capture people and chose to not keep them as slaves, what they would do to their enemies is bury them up to their neck. They would leave them there to die of starvation, dehydration, leaving them for the birds to peck away at their flesh. That is who God is telling Jonah to go visit. So maybe we should actually slow our roll here and maybe not be too hard on Jonah at first. Maybe we should say, you know what? He kind of had a right to be scared. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And we ask that question, why do you think Jonah refused to go? Was he scared? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but it would make sense if he was. But what we do know, because we've read the whole book of Jonah, is that it wasn't as simple as fear. It wasn't just that he was afraid of them. There is more to it, and we are going to look at that question every week as the text reveals it to us. So what do we know? Well, we know that Jonah is so rocked by the word of God that he flees. Okay, where does he go? Not east to Nineveh, but west to Tarshish. So that would be like present-day Spain. And I heard one commentary say it is like, think of it as Timbuktu. Spain was as far as they knew at that present time. Jonah is so rocked that that's where he goes. And it's funny, if you look closely at the text, it says he rose, but he went to Tarshish. He arose, but not in the way that God commanded him. Instead, what it says he did is he went down. Once again, you see this author is being very intentional with these contrasting terms. We have far east, far west, arose, went down. We're going to pay attention to those. It says that he went down to the port, hoping to find a ship for Tarshish. He gets to the port in Joppa, and lo and behold, what's he find? There's a ship headed for Tarshish. How convenient things are really looking up for our guy Jonah. Well, what is Jonah fleeing from? I think sometimes in Bible study, there's this temptation to make every question like this big, broad feeling question. What is he fleeing from? And we try and think of this elaborate answer when really, no, I just want you to look at your Bible and answer the question. It's just a simple comprehension. What is he fleeing from? It says it twice in one verse. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So then again, let's revisit our question. What can we conclude about Jonah's thoughts toward God? What is Jonah's behavior revealing about his theology? It seems to be Jonah is saying, God loves these people from this land. So when God comes and reveals this much wider expanse to his love and his mercy, to his compassion, Jonah cannot stomach it. And it actually, it makes me wonder, did Jonah think that God only dwelt in the temple? Because he thinks that if he leaves town, he has left God's presence. That would make sense with with what those people were told about the temple and what worship looked like for Jews in those, those years. We asked in our study, is it possible to flee from God's presence? And I hope you guys came up with the answer, no. We looked at several cross references. No, you cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. I think we would agree on that. But then I wonder, do we actually live like we believe that? Do we actually believe and live in a way that says we can't get away from God's presence? Or do we sometimes act like Jonah, act like God can't see me here, or God isn't with me here? So many times we live in a way that says God can't see me. 
I think of, you know, the, maybe the toddler who has been eating the forbidden cookies and he gets caught. He's got the crumbs all over himself, but he covers his eyes thinking, okay, if I can't see her in that look of death she's giving me, then I will be okay. She can't see me. I think sometimes that's kind of how we regard God. Or maybe we think like Jonah, that God can't see what goes on behind closed doors. Take that literally or metaphorically. God, you know, it doesn't matter how we behave at home behind closed doors as long as we behave well in that foyer. Or metaphorically, as long as I have good behavior on the outside, it doesn't matter what's going on in my heart. God can't see what goes on behind closed doors. Man, I had to learn this a really, really hard way as a mom. I had a double dose of learning that this is what my kids' theology was, or not theology, this is what my, my kids' thoughts about me were. I can't see what goes on behind closed doors. So in Colorado about six years ago, five years ago, um, it's nap time, right? This is my happy time. This is my place of sanity. So I sent all three of the boys to their room, tuck them in, put them down for that wonderful one o'clock nap. And it's so quiet. I'm thinking, gosh, I have good nappers. This is amazing. Well, two hours later, my oldest comes out. What he had found behind closed doors was a red permanent marker. What he had done with that red permanent marker obviously, was paint his entire body with it because he was Spider-Man. <laughs> Top to bottom. He took off his clothes and covered himself in red permanent marker. Thinking, I will never find out what happens behind closed doors. Well, it's permanent, buddy. A year later, you think I would have learned my lesson? Our house is now on the market. We are ready to move back to Iowa. Our house is on the market. We have a showing that afternoon after nap time, blessed nap time. Get my children to their naps, put Matthias in his room. Matthias is the innocent one so far, right? The sweet middle of my family. And you know, we've been packing, so we have boxes everywhere. What do we have with our boxes? Permanent markers, because you have to label your boxes. Two hours later, that quiet nap time, I open up that closed door, what do I find? Matthias has redecorated his entire room. He has drawn on every wall of my for sale house with a blue permanent marker. My children had a similar thinking to Jonah. God's presence, mom's presence, I mean, is nowhere around me because there is a closed door. I can't see him, so he must not be able to see me. So here we have Jonah on the run. Why is Jonah running from God? Well, part of it is he's banking on the assumption that God, God's presence goes no further than Israel. He's banking on that. So what has he done? He's gone down to Joppa. He's gone, he's hopped on a boat. He's gone down below deck. He is running and hiding from God. And like so much of the Bible, guys, I hope that this started to sound familiar to you. This started to sound like Genesis 1 through 3. There in the Garden of Eden, who do we have? We have Adam and Eve, God's children, his royal vice regents. And they are there and they have a job. Adam and Eve, your job is to reflect and to represent me. Represent me in Eden. But then I want you to take it and press it out beyond the garden. Take my domain, take my rule, and press it out beyond Eden. Jonah, a child of God, a worker bee for God, given the same job description. Jonah, reflect and represent me in Israel and now beyond. Jonah, take my rule, 
take my dominion, press it out beyond the promised land, press it out beyond paradise, like to Nineveh, for example. What did Adam and Eve do? They decided that they were going to make their own definition of what is good and what is evil. So they dismissed God's word and they hardened at it. And instead of crushing that snake, what do they do? But they coddle him and they decide that his word is preferable to God's. Jonah. Jonah is unable to accept the word of the Lord and he hardens at it. And he doubts that what God said could possibly be good. And we have both Adam and Jonah on the run, looking to hide. Adam hiding, covering up behind fig leaves. Jonah running west towards Spain. The same goal for both of these guys. Get as far from the presence of God as possible. Put distance between me and God. Maybe then this shame will be quieted. Maybe then this guilt will subside. And here's one of those times where I start to wiggle in discomfort because the story of Jonah turns this unflattering mirror onto me. As I hear God say to me, Rebecca, why do you run? Rebecca, why do you put this subtle, quiet distance between me and you. Rebecca, why do you stiff arm me? I think that there are many answers to this question. I think we will ask this question every week, but what I see in the text this week is that the answer of why we run from God is linked to idolatry. I think that there is an idol in my life when I want distance between me and God. And I think Jonah had a lot of idols. The trick about idols within the church, though, is that they're subtle. They're sneaky. They look good at face value. But let's take a look at this. Actually, put yourself in Jonah's shoes with me, ladies. Here he was in his sweet spot, right? Who would ever want to leave their sweet spot? Jonah is in that place where his strengths are being used and where affirmations and confirmations just come regularly. Our sweet spot is that place where there's very little gap between the work that we do and the reward for doing that work. That's where Jonah was, serving as a prophet for, for God in a prosperous time for the people of God. We looked at the messages that Jonah was known for delivering up to this point. They were good news. Who doesn't like the guy who brings good news? That's why I see him as like the homecoming king of Israel. Everybody loved Jonah. Have you been in your sweet spot of late? No conflicts. The future is clear and optimistic. Maybe your career and your family are steady under your feet and people in general are liking you. You are in your sweet spot. And that's where I think Jonah was. But within that spot, we find him bowing low to an idol. I think broadly we would say that his idol is his religion. But maybe to get it a little bit closer to home, we would actually say that within that, it was an idol of security and comfort. And that's when we started to think, oh yeah, I think I could understand that. Jonah is bowing low to the idol of comfort and security. 
See, I think he thought that he was worshiping God, the God of Israel, but what he was now worshiping was actually a man-made version of that God, a God that actually he fashioned in his own mind and he had shaped it and formed it by the things that he loved. What did Jonah love? He loved his religion. He loved his home. I think he loved that his job brought with it a purpose. And so do I. I love my religion. I love that I can claim a Jeremiah 29 11. I have plans, God has plans for me, plans of a hope and a future. I love that my religion comes with the warm fuzzies and a big love for me. I love my home. I love that it makes me feel secure. And I am so sad to tell you guys, but I love my job and that so often it makes me feel like I have purpose. It puts me in a good light before people. And I love these things. But my love for those things starts to supersede my love for God. And I actually start to distort who I think God is. So then how do I know that? How do we know if we have an idol in our life? Well, I think it's when we start to lose it that we see what it is. So what happens when God comes to me and he threatens my sweet spot just like he did with Jonah? I start to crumble. When this man-made version of God starts to crumble in front of me, I can't stomach it. And so I harden. I harden at him. Sometimes that's first seen by me hardening at other people, often hardening at the people closest to me. When my understanding, when Jonah's understanding of who God is, is jolted, we harden and we flee. There was a season in my life that this uh, was very much displayed. So a, a very long story made very short. About a year after Matt and I, uh, my husband and I came to Veritas, um, we, we had recently healed from some pretty severe church hurt, hurt from our own sinful behavior. Um, and I was starting to believe, you know what, here's what I expect out of life now. We've taken this time to, to repent of our sins, you know, and to find a, a new heart towards the Lord. So expectations started to build. And I thought, here's what God's love should do for us. If God loves us, here's what he should do for us. He should bring life full circle and Matt should come back into youth ministry. That's what his first career was. And here we are at Veritas and there's no youth ministry yet. So what do I start doing? I start creating one, right? I just start working with the junior high girls and like pushing my husband to work with like the junior high and high school boys. We start hosting things at our house. Meanwhile, Mark's like, yeah, I don't know, dude. Like, I don't know if it's like the need of the hour, you know? And I'm like, ooh, I harden. And I think, oh, how silly. Mark doesn't know what is good. Okay, new angle. So I start pushing Matt. Matt, this is what is good. This is how God should show his love to us. We will have full redemption if God would give us an encore from seasons past. God bless us in the way that makes sense to me. Matt's like, Rebecca, I don't know. I don't feel like this is what God has for us. I feel like God has something new for us. And I'm like, oh, snap, no. 
Oh, I did more than hardened. I bristled. I said, silly husband, you do not know what is good. See, I was so sure that I knew what was, what was good for us. I knew better than God. I knew what was good and what was evil. I had this great idea thought up. I couldn't get my husband to come to my side. I couldn't get our pastor to be convinced that that was what was supposed to happen at that time. So what's my plan? I'll go to the elders. Oh, gasp. Go ahead, gasp. <laughs> I had what seemed like a good, not evil plan in my mind so that we could usher God's blessings in, not just to us, but for his people. Well, lo and behold, I'm related to one of the elders. Maybe I will go to the one I'm related to, because he'll have a listening ear, and tell him, look, we are here. We have experience in youth ministry. We are ready to go. Guys, I was going to, to start that plan on a Monday when God stopped me on that Saturday, stopped me on a dime, and said to me, Rebecca, you are not submitting to your husband. You are not submitting to your church leadership. And you are not submitting to me. You are hardening at it. And guys, it was one of those times that is unique in my life where my heart changed in an instant. My heart of stone immediately became a heart of flesh because of the Spirit of God. And I immediately turned and repented of that before I talked to the elders. Thank goodness. <laughs> Idols can be tricky, especially within the church. But for me, comfort and security came from an encore from God. That's what I thought I needed. I needed God to behave in a way that I'd seen him behave before. I needed him to bring about something that made sense to me. And when God did not do that, it rocked me but it rocked me for the better. See, so, so often when we have an idol in our life, what we're actually doing is we're loving God for what he can do for us. We're loving God for what he has given us rather than for who he actually is. So the next question that these first six verses ask is what does God do when his children run away? What does he do? Well, it says right there, in verse four, but the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. What does God do when his children run away? He comes after them. Okay, so consider this with me first, ladies. Think about this. Jonah knew God, right? Jonah knew the God of Israel, at least to an extent, and he had received messages from him before. But this message was different. This time he's sending a storm. So Jonah, previously, he had received messages about the people of Israel, right? God gives him a message and he, it's about the people of Israel. And Jonah had no problem with that. That's not what God's doing now. What, what kind of message is he giving him? Is God chasing Jonah down saying, oh my goodness, Jonah, I asked too much of you. I'm so sorry. Jonah, please come back. No, that's not what we see God doing here. God is not backtracking, trying to get his golden boy back on his good side. That's not the God of Israel. See, this is a very different message that God is sending to Jonah because this message is about Jonah. God is sending a message to Jonah about Jonah because our God is a very personal 
Jonah was going to learn that. This was not a message for the masses. It was a message for Jonah. Even how he sends the storm speaks of how personal he is. We looked about how this word wind is translated in the Hebrew ruach. It's a word that's actually supposed to like get stuck in your throat, ruach. It means the breath of God or like the exhalation from his nostrils. That's how personal he is. That is how he is sending this storm. Have you ever been so close to someone that you feel the hot exhalation from their nostrils? Right? We talked about this in the Genesis study. You have to be really close with someone to feel that. I'm sure we could all share some great stories of great kisses where we felt that. But I was thinking of something totally different instead. So when I was growing up, me and my three, two sisters on Christmas Eve would all sleep in the same bed. Okay? We would sleep in the exact same twin bed and we would talk about what we were going to get that next morning for Christmas. Well, then my little brother came along. We're like, sure, there's room for him. So then we pile Ryan in to this, like, maybe this, a pallet. And we would all, like sardines, get in there and talk about that next morning. We were close to each other, but there's still plenty of room. Well, see, we have one of those families that has a hard time with change. So when the three of us got married, we invited the men to join us. It's a slumber party. Come on, husbands. We'll just like make this pallet and we'll all stay up and talk about what we're going to get for Christmas the next morning. Guys, we were so close to each other that not only were we feeling the exhalation from each other's nostrils, but we had to put Ryan in the closet. And it wasn't like one of those walk-in closets. It was just like those sliding doors, you know. There was no, no room for Ryan in the inn that Christmas. But... So that's what I think of when I think that is how close God was to Jonah. He sent his ruach, his wind, his breath to him. And especially if you did the study in the fall on Genesis, you're starting to picture creation. Maybe you're starting to remember that in Genesis chapter one, we read that the breath of God was actively involved in creation. There was the spirit or the breath of God. And what we read is that it was hovering over the unformed earth. What was it doing? It was poised and ready, ready to create. And here we see that same spirit, that same breath of God, hovering over the Mediterranean, poised and ready for what? To recreate Jonah's understanding of who God was and of what God wanted from him. But then it gets even cooler because if we were to jump to Acts chapter two, we would find the day of Pentecost. And it describes that here the disciples are locked up in this room. Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, and then ascended into heaven. They think that God is far from them. They think that Jesus has left them, but then they hear a mighty wind. And it says that the Spirit of God in the, in the form of a, a tongue of fire was hovering, suspended over them. The Spirit of God then suspended over his people, doing what? Ready to recreate the church's understanding of who God is. And then it says that the Spirit filled the people, filled the disciples. You cannot get any closer to God than having him live inside of you. That is what is going on in this portion of Jonah's story. God is, is remaking his religion. T 
taking it from a religion to a relationship? Did you actually imagine the storm of Jonah? Did you picture like how the, the skies would be dark and there would be thunder and there would be lightning and, and the rain coming down so hard and the boat is threatening to break up so maybe you hear like that lumber splitting and the, the mariners are up there and they're heaving cargo, they're hurling it over the side of the boat and maybe they're falling and then sliding and slipping and they're doing everything that they can. This is a chaotic scene. And we looked at how Often in the Bible, when we see the word seas, it is depicting a time of chaos or uncertainty. It's often symbolized death to the original readers. Jonah's storm was a result of his sin, right? Ladies, here's what we do need to understand about it though. Not all storms in your life are happening because of sin. However, all sin in our lives will bring a storm. Do you believe that difference? Do you think of the storms in your life right now? Not all of them are there because of sin. But ladies, if there is a sin in my life and in yours, it will eventually bring a storm. Ladies, listen to this. Within every storm is the ability and the good purposes of God to show you his presence and his love. Within every storm is the good purposes of God. Every storm is exhaled that it might throw you near to God. All storms, all threats, all sufferings, they hold within them this ability for God to get our attention. Do you believe that in your life right now? See, here's the beautiful reveal in just these first six verses of Jonah. It opens and we're saying that Jonah believes, God, you love me and I know it because of all the success because of all of these things I have. But now God is saying, Jonah, I love you. And it is obvious because of this storm. Jonah, I love you. And it is with a love that you do not yet understand. This love is made obvious by the storm that I have sent. God loved Jonah too much to let him run away. God loved Jonah too much to let him stay in his current understanding of who God was. But that is no joke. I mean, that is not easy to understand. There has to be more than ritualistic religion in a man or a woman to understand a truth like that. There has to be an awareness of the intimacy of God, a nearness of God, if that belief is going to be embraced. So do we think that Jonah's got it? Has Jonah had his aha moment? No, he's not even close. What does it say? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. What? Where is Jonah during this tempest? He is down under the boat sleeping. 
If we said that Jonah was drunk on his earlier success, now we would say he is in a stupor. Why is it that he is able to sleep through the storm? Is it because he trusted God? No. I don't think so. That doesn't make sense with the story as a whole. So what do you think it was? I mean, I think that Jonah could have been so depressed because he is mourning the loss of his job. I think that maybe Jonah is just so depressed because he is now realizing, I cannot control God. Perhaps he is feeling the loss of his plan for life. Whatever it is, I would say Jonah is drowning in apathy, so to speak. God is revealing himself to Jonah. Ladies, it was like sandpaper rubbing on his soul. And that stole his peace. That storm on the outside just symbolizing the storm going on inside of Jonah. What Jonah was doing was escaping. He was withdrawing, running away, cuddling up. And the irony in escaping is that it steals our rest. And so that's why we turned to Mark 4 this week. We turned to Mark 4 where we found this story that maps onto the story of Jonah so well. I hope you guys geeked out when you saw like how the word great was used over and over again. These New Testament authors, they are intentional with every word they choose. They want you to piece it with the Old Testament, seeing the Bible as one big story. So in Mark 4, we see that Jesus has invited his disciples to come with him out on the boat. Jesus then cuddles up and takes a nap. He is sleeping, and there's a huge storm. Jesus is sleeping, just like Jonah. But this true and better Jonah, as we will often see him to be, is sleeping for very different reasons. See, what I want you guys to actually think about is in that original context. If you were one of the, the Jewish disciples there and you see that Jesus calms this great storm with the word, the words coming out of his mouth, what are those Jewish disciples going to picture? Exodus 14. The story they knew almost better than anyone was the story of the Exodus where the people of God stood before the Red Sea, the Egyptians hunting them down, and God splits the Red Sea. He shows his dominion over the chaotic waters, the waters of death. He makes a road for them there, and they are saved. One of the first steps in them becoming God's people. That is what the disciples are starting to calculate. They're saying, wait a minute, I see what just happened with this Jesus guy that we're getting to know. And I'm going to put it with this story of our people's salvation. And oh my word, Jesus is God. See, ladies, before those disciples would have penned smaller applications about how God calms the, the chaos in our life, they would make a much grander application that Jesus is God. Jesus is is God and he is also the true and better Jonah because he is not apathetic to our fears or to our storms. He is not detached to your pain, ladies. He does not sleep or slumber. He is God 
the image of the invisible God. And for that reason, when he speaks, nature obeys. Storms stop their raging. And because of that, we, his people, find rest on the inside. But there's one more point that I want us to close on today. Stay there in Mark 4. There's a big difference between what we see in Mark 4 and what we see in Jonah. So we have said Jonah experienced the storm because of his disobedience, right? But the disciples, they experienced a storm because they obeyed. They obeyed Jesus and that's why they encountered a storm. This is also not easy to swallow. Ladies, there are some of you who have chaos or a storm or confusion in your life, and it is because of sin. It is because you have hardened at God. But there are also storms in your life, maybe because you obey. There may be chaos in your life because you are choosing to live by faith. There are storms that are in your life because God and his good sovereignty has led you to them. The boat of your life has been rocked because you have maybe welcomed somebody into your home or into your life because you are following Jesus into the unknown. Ladies, I wanna be in those storms not in the ones that come from disobedience. I want to suffer for doing good, not for doing evil, as it says in 1 Peter. When a storm comes up, I don't want to harden, but I want to soften to who God is, to who Jesus is. So ladies, if that is you right now, if life is hard, chaotic, confusing, if it is a grind right now, if you are suffering, I want to tell you that you are right where you are supposed to be. In 1 Peter 4, we are encouraged with this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! And as much as you have participated in the sufferings of Christ. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Ladies, if that is you, you are where you are supposed to be right now. I heard Mark quote somebody else, I don't know who originally said this, but wouldn't we rather be in the boat with Jesus in the middle of a storm rather be tanning and having a drink on a yacht on still waters? Wouldn't we rather be in that boat with Jesus, knowing that he is the true and better Jonah? So if you wake up in the mornings and, it, and you remember this suffering, this oppression, this hardship, just this grind that you are in, and you still feel surprised by that as a daughter of God, if you're still like, good grief, what's my problem? Why can't, I, why can't I snap out of this? Why do I still want life to be easier or, or better? I actually want to validate you 
Because could it actually be that somewhere deep inside of us, we know and understand that we were made for something even better than Eden? See, maybe there is something deep in our soul where we understand we were made for glory. We were made for a life of perfection where we live in perfect union with God, where we are made for a place where there is peace. I mean, heaven is described as the place where the seas will be no more. If you do feel surprised by how hard life continues to be, or girls, let it be that for that reason. Let it be because we want to suffer for doing good because we know where our home is. It is not here, but it is in heaven. That is good news for us. Let's pray.